Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 13, or the passages on the insert for you. I would like to take two weeks to cover Genesis 13, but today we'll do an overarching sweep of the whole passage, the story that unfolds here. And then next week, Lord willing, I would like to focus in on verses 14 through 18. That'll make more sense when we survey it this morning. Um, We are at this part of Abram's life where he is coming back with his tail tucked really between his legs, coming back from Egypt. It's an interesting analysis when you look at how he comes back better off than when he left, but the whole way it went down. Spiritually, he forgot God very explicitly when the famine came, and rather than seek God's aid, um, he took matters into his own hands, and despite all the grace God had already shown him, despite the fact that he was a genuine believer, this is not someone who was an unbeliever, he forgot God, and he went down uh, to Egypt to try to get food from the Egyptians, knowing this would put them at risk. Um, he lied about his wife to save himself, and it could have cost his wife's life. It probably did cost her, definitely cost her hardship, mistreatment possibly as well. We don't know the extent of what she went through. It's never mentioned. But he did all of this, put his family in harm's way like this, really to save himself, to take the matter into his own hands. Forgetting God, uh, the man who uh, is the father of the faith, as they say, um, was faithless, at least in those moments, in his choice to go down to Egypt. But God intervenes and shows grace, but that grace means judgment upon Pharaoh, and he's not a blessing to the nations like God had forecasted Abram to be, but rather Pharaoh comes under judgment because of the lie that Abram told. But Pharaoh sends him back to the promised land, back to Canaan, back to where God wanted Abram to be, and even sends him with with gold and people and animals, and he heads back. Now we pick up the passage in Genesis 13. Here as I read God's holy word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between me, you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have all been where Abram is in this passage. We have spent a time in the spiritual wilderness, wandering for one reason or another. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for your patience with us and your love for us. You humble us with your great grace that you show towards us, even though we don't deserve any of it. Please humble us again by your grace so that we might be refreshed this day, renewed in our love and our commitment to you. By the ministry of your word and spirit, remind us of what is true and also what we should do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Probably everybody goes through a, spirit, a, a period of spiritual dryness or a lack of spiritual zeal or energy. I don't talk to probably any Christian who doesn't relate with this kind of a period in your life. Times of apathy, perhaps. True Christians we're talking about, not people who are waffling in their faith. They know Christ is their Savior. They're sure that Jesus has paid it all for them. They know they are renewed in Christ and that they are sons or daughters of God. They recognize this, but they go through periods. We go through periods of dryness where we we try to do it on our own, where we try to find our own way. And before you know it, we've gotten a, a ways from the Lord and we have this sense of being far away. I hear people say, I'm feeling spiritually dry right now. It's though I've gotten off spiritual track. Well, what should a person do? What should a Christian do to get back on spiritual track when we're off spiritual track? Once again, the person of Abram helps us here. Um, He's not primarily set up as an example, but he serves as one. In fact, the bigger point of the story is God is now narrowing down to the person of Abram from whom he'll bring Israel, from which will come the Savior. But there is much for us to grasp here in the trek that Abram takes, because while Abram is held as a bit of a hero of the faith, we see him referred to that way in the book of Hebrews, for instance, there's so much human about him that we can all relate with. He has just come from a place of self-dependence and self-reliance, and we saw the pain it caused his family, Egypt, and himself. And now he's uh, turned around and sent back. It's really a gracious thing, though, that God sends him back. And we see what unfolds as, I think, a bit of a picture of how we might get back on spiritual track if we find ourselves wandering a bit spiritually, or if you're dry, lacking some of that freshness of the faith you may have experienced in other times of your life. How does Abram in this story get back to the place where in verse 18, he's building another altar before the Lord, and he's consecrated afresh to following God in his mission? How does he get from where he was in Egypt, lying about his wife, jeopardizing her and everyone and everything about the promises to a place where he's setting up an altar again. What happens 
That's what we see in those verses. First, what you will notice, and I think applies to our own lives, is he comes to a a humbling about all that he had been through and what God was doing for him. God did not discipline him at that moment any more than what had happened in in the actual instance. He leads him back with more stuff than he had before. And so he's humbled by the grace of God. And when he gets back, he goes to the place, the altar that he first built. He goes back to that place of dependence upon God. And he recommits, if you will. It comes back to his mind in his life that he should be in this place of calling upon the name of the Lord. So we see him be humbled by God's grace. We see him go back to that altar of commitment, that freshness that he experienced at first. But it doesn't stop there. It moves on from there. He makes resolution. He decides that he's going to do some things to be sure he stays on mission. Now, all of it's by God's grace. That's the backdrop of the whole thing. But in real time, Abram, being humbled again by grace, again seeing and calling upon the name of the Lord, recognizes some things have to be different in his life or he'll go back to that place of self-reliance. He'll go back to that place of spiritual dryness. You can't just um, have a mountaintop experience and then think that's what gets you. There's things that have to happen. His life has to have some adjustments made. And we see that with the separation of him and Lot and his consideration about what he was now going to do in fulfilling God's call to the promised land. Finally, we see him settling into a place of worship, a covenant renewal, where God speaks the words of the covenant of grace to him again, what he promises him, and he responds by doing what God says, arising and going, and worshiping him. And we end the story with him where he started his spiritual journey back in that place of dependence upon God. Now, I don't think we absolutely ever go back to the place that we started, but that place of recognizing our dependence, our need for God against the backdrop of our sin, that's a sweet spot. But we are to grow and mature. and We see that happen in Abram's life. But there should be a continual renewal of that grace in our life. Some of that's set up for us and the rhythms God gives us in the Word and in the body of Christ Some of this is just our responsibility to recognize where we are, admit it, come to God, he'll never cast us out, always looking to revive us and to give us a new zeal to follow him. Let's go to the passage, and as we walk through, we'll see this process that happens where you might say Abram gets back on spiritual track. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. This is this humbling journey back from Egypt humbled afresh by God's grace. That's the starting point of getting back on track. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the Negev. Now, pause for a moment. I'm sure that not many of you husbands can relate with this, but I've done this on occasion where there would be somewhere we were out, worst case is it was on a long trip, and I did something that wasn't wise, or I said something that wasn't smart. And It caused a bit of a rift between my wife and I. Now we get in the car and have a long ride. Now I don't care how much you've ever experienced what I just described. It cannot be worse than the caravan from Egypt for Abraham, for Abraham all the way up. I mean, what do you say to to your wife after this? I just sold you out to a pagan pharaoh, didn't care what happened to you as long as it saved me. But only because of God's intervention by sending plagues were you saved and all of us still preserved and were walking back to where we came from. What was that walk like? What was that experience like? 
There had to be a humbling there. There's no, Abram had to feel humble by how he really had sold out his wife, sold out his family, jeopardized so much of what the promises were to him about land and seed and so forth. So there's plenty of time for him to contemplate how gracious God had been to him and his family, that his wife was not dead, that they were together. And not only were they together, look what it says. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. We know that Pharaoh loaded him up with these things, with people and livestock and jewels and riches to get him out of there because of what he had brought to them. So even despite his disobedience, he goes away blessed. What a humbling experience this had to be for the patriarch as he goes back to where he came from, and he's heading now to where it all began after God had given him the initial promise. You know, when I think of our own walks, um, getting back on spiritual track starts when we just recognize um, that we, we are dry, that we are, uh, are getting old if in the faith, feeling that we're old in the faith, that we're worn a bit. And there's a sense of acknowledgement and then a pause to take our eyes off of what our situation is. At first, Abram got into this situation because he was so focused on the famine and trying to save himself, not in the promises of God. And so he's focusing on self-preservation, self-reliance. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get out of this. And he rides that, and that gets him in a bad place spiritually because you can't answer all these complex questions of life. And so he finds himself at the end of his rope, costs all this to so many people, all sorts of pain to so many people, and then God miraculously intervenes, saves him out of this. And so he has to now stop and focus on what God has done, not on what his situation is. And that's the starting point, is to take our eyes off of ourselves and where we are, as difficult as it may be. It was a real trial that Abram had. It's not to be glossed over lightly. Famine, hunger, worry about those he loved. But he was focused on his own answers. And so the first step for us is to take our eyes off of whatever situation has us dry, whatever situation has us tattered or stretched out spiritually or stressed. Take our eyes off that for a moment Recognize all that God has done for us. If nothing else, you, child of God, will live eternally with your Father in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, I would suggest the last part of this passage is more a promise to that eternal life we'll receive in Emmanuel's land. And that's all yours. This is a really short life you're living right now, super short. Uh, The whole of your existence, as you'll come to find out, will be glorious in presence with Christ as he created things to be. We can't even imagine. No eye has seen or ear has heard the things that God has for the children of God. And even if we can't get over the situation we're in because it's so serious, and it may be, we can still look up to see that. And for most of us, the issue that's presenting a problem for us, causing the dryness, isn't as big as we're making it. It's just become that. So the first step in coming back is that since the the grace that God's shown to you, it will humble you, it will give you pause, it will help you look more clearly at all the things God has promised you and is doing for you right now. That's the first step, and this is what I think the walk back from Egypt does for Abram. We see it continue to progress, his being revitalized in his faith when he goes back to the altar where it all started. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. You know, there's spiritual highs and lows, whatever they may be, It's important for us to contemplate um, the steadiness of our God towards us and what he has done and provided. 
Abram goes back to recapture his uh, previous walk with God, you might say, by now. Uh, So for us, go back to our root understanding of God's calling to us as sinners, called us to salvation and to the life he's called us to live on his behalf. Go back to your root response to God's grace to you. When you heard the gospel the first time or when you remember hearing it uh, afresh, go to that kind of a a sense, that kind of experience. Go back to the altar of commitment. And I mean more figuratively now than literally. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev. That's the south part of Israel. So he goes from Egypt up to the Negev as far as Bethel, Bethel uh, meaning the house of God to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Remember when he had his tent, which was temporary, but he built an altar there? It's between Bethel and Ai. It says in verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. Have you ever gone back to a place that you visited years ago and there's something that you either left there, maybe etched something in a tree or there's some rock, rock pile or whatever? There was a a fort that my boys built years and years ago that we'd forgot about for several years in Colorado. And a few years back, the last time we were all there as a family, they went to go find just the ruins of it to remember it. And remember, because when you go back to that place, even though it doesn't look just like it did, they all start talking about what it used to look like and all their various exploits out of there, trying to hunt squirrels and the like, and the things that they did. And it comes back and it's freshened. Uh, the, the, the altar has this kind of significance for Abram. As he goes back to it, it's, it's a sense in which I need to go back to where it began, back to where I had that love for my God. And he goes back to this place, the place where he had made an altar at the first, where Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I didn't call upon the name of the Lord, Abram might have thought, and I went down to Egypt. I don't want that again. I want to call upon the name of the Lord the next time I do whatever I do. And it says, that he does call upon, he prays to God. And make no mistake, this isn't just symbolic. This isn't just like someone getting given a toast at a wedding. This is Abram talking to Yahweh. This is Abram talking to the God of the universe. Why? How? Because he can. God has given him access by his grace. Through Christ, Abram can speak to God. You say, Christ, he hasn't been mentioned yet. Oh, he has. He's been mentioned from the beginning. As soon as sin entered, the only way we could ever have any access to God is through Christ. The Old Testament saints look ahead to the finished work of Christ that's promised. It's as good as going to happen. We look back upon the finished work of Christ, but Abram goes to God because he has access. He accesses this means of grace, this this capacity to gain the grace of God by calling on on the name of the Lord. He's worshiping him. This is a a way of focusing ourselves so that we don't become spiritually dry, that we access this grace that God's given us through prayer. The Lord's given us several different means that we can always go to that will help keep us fresh. We call them means of grace or tools that God gives for spiritual growth or freshness. In our catechism, it says, what are the outward and ordinary means, Uh, the typical ways that Christ communicates to us the benefits of the redemption he gives? This is the same thing Abram's looking for. How do I gain the benefits of the covenant of grace that you promised me, God? I call upon your name. You said all these things to me, now I call upon your name. Now for us, we call upon your name. We end our prayers in Jesus' name. We mean to say, through Christ, we want to access the benefits, Father, that you've given us, which first and foremost are assurance that we are his children. Really, everything else can fall away if we know we're his children that helps us with everything else. 
And this is what Abram recognizes. This is part of how you become spiritually fresh again. You call upon the name of the Lord. You pray to him. What is prayer? Our catechism does a great job of taking all the biblical texts and summarizes it this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. What do we pray? We pray for things agreeable to his will. Not necessarily what I want, but Lord, if this is your will, we pray for this. In the name of Christ, through his finished work, with confession of our sins, that means with humility. We know we're sinners and we can only ask this because of what Jesus has done. And we do so with a thankful acknowledgement for the mercy he's shown us. That's exactly the demeanor Abram has as he comes back. So if you're looking to be spiritually revitalized, it comes from a humble acknowledgement of the grace of God, and it comes from um, a going to that altar of commitment, of recommitment, you might call it. I don't mean like summer camp. When I used to go to summer camp, when I, I grew up Roman Catholic, then I started going to a summer camp that was a, you know, born-again Christian, Jesus-freak type people. Like, you know, I hope you are, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and I remember really being uncomfortable with all the talk. I mean, it was a, if you come from the background I was at, I, was very, I went to church every week and I had a very high view. I was reverent in my view, but I didn't use that lingo very much. And camper after camper would have a week of camp where we memorized scripture and we did lots of, lots of things that were very helpful. I'm not knocking that. But at the end of the week, and I was, you know, living, I had like one foot in the world, one foot out, trying to figure out what all these Christians were doing. But I would see Christians that I knew who were also doing that um, but they would be fired up for God, and they would get all pumped up, and they get up and get their stick, and you're supposed to go up and give a testimony about how great the week of camp was. I mean, six days of camp is going to change, you know, everything. And you throw the stick into the fire and announce how you're going to be better that year at school. You know, it didn't take me, like, till school started again, and I saw all the same kids doing the same things. Like, that's something that, that's not, that's a revivalism or, like, a decisionalism. That's not what I'm saying here. This is coming from something God's doing by that humbling. And so it's not an outward action in itself. It's, it's, we're motivated to go and cry out to God and acknowledge him in prayer. And in that sense, there's a recommitment that happens at that moment. But it doesn't stop there. It, it continues. There's more to it. We'll see that something has to be done now as a result of this revitalization that's occurring in Abram's life. I'll call it a consecrating and separating. Consecrating meaning a commitment to set yourself to do what God's called you to do. But that will also mean there might be some separating from some of the stuff that you have in your life, some tweaking, some adjusting. You can't keep some of the same things in a line in, in your life and still hope to be able to follow God faithfully. Now, I don't mean gross uh, grow sins. Those are obvious. If there's sins in our lives, we have to repent of those. There could be good things in your life that are not sinful in and of themselves, but they're taking too much time, too much focus, too much devotion. You could be mixed up with people that are leading you away from devotion to God. You've got to recognize this. It's different for everybody in their given circumstance. But Abram had to realize to follow God's mission, there was a certain devotion he had to have. He had to consecrate himself to do what God called him to do, and that would mean some separation. And we see that happen with his nephew Lot, who had been with him to this point. Now, a quick word on Lot. We know by the whole of what the Scripture says, he was definitely wobbly. He struggled. He struggled greatly. But later, when you get to the New Testament, he is described as someone who was righteous. He was a believer. And we'll see later with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that God saved him because he was one of his children. There's, there's something to this about him. But for this moment, we see a real difference between Abram and Lot and how they make their decisions, how they consecrate and separate. Look at verse 5, and we'll see how this unfolds. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. He was rich too. 
So much so, verse 6, that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. They just had too much to be able to graze off land or use the water in this spot. There was just too much. and It was, cause, it was already causing stress. Verse 6, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Now, on the surface, we're amazed by their possessions and how they've acquired them. But we'll find out they don't become friendly to them. Um, their possessions and even the people they took from Egypt back start to play into the story as it unfolds. It, it complicates things. It's not setting it up as a model for us to follow. It's just describing what's going on. Now, look at verse 7. You can imagine what will happen. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. They're, they're sent out to feed and water the flocks, but they're running into each other, and now they're starting to have arguments and conflicts. At that time, on top of all this, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It's not open land there. It was, there were people already occupying it, and they were fending for themselves. So if you have this huge, it really it would have looked like a small city-state by the time it had been so big. If you have internal squabbles that's weakening you, you could become susceptible to those outside forces, those other uh, nations, if you call them that. Uh, they might come against you. So they need to be strong. It was not good for either of them to have these squabbles. There's too much danger around. So Abram looks at the situation, invigorated in his faith, refreshed, knows the promises of God, that God promises to give them a land to dwell in. He says to Lot, look at verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're family. We don't need to have this situation unravel any further. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. He's going to give Lot the chance to take whatever he wants. Because Abram knows that God has promised him land. He's going to get the land that God has promised. It's not going to, it's not going to uh, leave him out. God will provide for him. So he does the gracious thing. He says, the whole land's be Separate yourself, verse 9, from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Just take what you want, nephew. It's up to you. I'll wait for you to decide, then I'll go elsewhere. We just need to make sure that this separation happens. Now, Abram needs a separation. It's not because Lot is evil, but because Abram cannot stay focused on the mission that he has from God at that moment if they're in this group. So he has to make a decision, a calculation. We have to do that at times. It's not explicit. We just see this to be wise based on what his mission is and the difficulty of maintaining it if he keeps Lot with him. Now, I want you to notice, because I think Moses does this for good purpose, and commentators agree, what Lot does in response says a lot. Abram has not seen where he'll go yet. He's waiting to find out where Lot goes. But Lot is not acting out of the same kind of faith that Abram is, and we see it in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. So, you see here that it's not, he's by sight here. He's looking by sight to see where he might go. Abram is, is by faith. He doesn't know where he'll go yet. Whereas Lot, he's looking to kind of size it up to see where he'll go. Now, that's not unwise, but you see the difference in what, how these men approach where they'll go. So he looks up and he sees what's attractive to him, which makes sense. This is like Egypt. I mean, this is some really good land over here. It's like where we came from. That's what I need. Now, he did know that there, what, was, what happened in Zoar or were Sodom and Gomorrah's. He, he knew that reputation. They had already been through there. And it says that he looked everywhere, or he saw that the water was, it was well watered everywhere in the Jordan Valley, like the Garden of the Lord. This is verse 10. 
like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, this is many years before the time Moses is writing it. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So he goes to the east towards where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Well, of course, that means Abram will go then to the west or north and to the west. So he lifts his eyes and he makes a decision and he moves in that direction. Then verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now we know as the story unfolds that Lot got to the edge of Sodom here. Um, He likes the land and there is something that attracts him to the city in the, the, the metro region of Sodom and Gomorrah, what was happening there. But he doesn't go all the way there. It's like he, he knows better than to do that, at least at that moment. Alexander McLaren makes this observation about Lot's movements here. He says, Lot's history teaches what comes from settling with the world first, or settling for the world first, and God's kingdom second. For one thing, the association with it is sure to get closer. You know that's true. Lot began with choosing the plain Then he crept a little nearer. Then he put up his tent towards Sodom. And next time we hear of Lot, he's living in the city and mixed up inextricably with its people. That's what we find out to happen. And you know what's unusual about this passage, and I won't labor it now because it comes up later, but verse 13 is unusual for Moses when he puts in a verse that gives description of of the character of the people who are living in a certain city. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, this stands out because God is not, through Moses, ever hesitant to point out the wickedness of the Canaanite cities. There's something extra wicked here, though. This is not just a matter of pagans living like pagans. There's something about this where they're drawing others or forcing others into what they're doing. That's what we see unfolding. That makes it another level of, diff- another level of, of sinning. Uh, it's as harsh a language as could be applied to a place when you see that they're great sinners against the Lord. Well, what other kind of sinner is there? Well, it means sinner in the face of the Lord, like so, uh, so dismissive of God's ability to stop them from doing, it's in their face. Uh, it's, we're gonna do what we're gonna do. We don't care what God thinks. We want everyone else to join in with us. That's the kind of level we're seeing and we'll see more of as we come to Sodom and Gomorrah later. But this period, this period of time, um, you see Abram having to make choices. And these are choices that you have to make all the time, at least in comparison. Decisions to include something in your life or not include it in your life. It could even be people or relationships in your life or not. I don't mean to ultra-separate yourself. That's not what God's call to us is, especially in this era of the Christian life. There was a time in Israel's life where they were building up as a nation, and they have to com- stay completely clear of the nations because every time they get sucked into the religions of those nations. But after Christ comes and the Spirit descends and the people of God are no longer in a, in a theocratic nation, we're sprinkled in the nations of the earth, um, there's a carefulness we still have to have with regard to our living in the world. This is exactly the kind of thing that Paul warns, of, warns us of when he tells us that we can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. These are important, important distinctions that are made. A.W. Pink reflects upon Lot and I'll leave Lot here before we pick up with him again later in Genesis. But Pink says this, and I think it's helpful to to compare. Lot compares unfavorably with Abram, he says. Abram walked by faith, Lot by sight. Abram was generous. Lot was greedy and worldly. Abram looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. 
Lot made his home in a city that was built by man and destroyed by God. Abram was the father of all who believe. Lot was the father of those whose name is in perpetual infamy, Sodom. Abram was made heir of the world while the curtain falls upon Lot with all his possessions destroyed in Sodom. Lot believed in, believed in God. That's not that he didn't. We find that to be the case. But we see him not make certain separations and end up pretty much assimilated, whereas you have Abram now getting back on spiritual track, has to make some choices with spiritual priorities, and that's what he does. Now, we come to verse 14 down to verse 18. I mentioned to you that I'm going to spend um, a sermon on this passage because there's a deeper meaning than this surface. The surface will be God renewing his land covenant and his offspring covenant with his people. And that's important, and it gives Abram immediate um, refreshment to continue to follow. But there's much deeper promises uh, enveloped in this passage. This is the, the kind of the roots of understanding what the heavenly state is, <clears throat> what uh, Emmanuel's land is <clears throat> that I referred to earlier. So when we come to 14, we see a renewal of the promises. This is essential to our spiritual vitality that we have regular covenant renewal, uh, corporately as the people of God, but also personally. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. What this is is a renewal or a, rep, a repetition of what he promised in the opening verses of chapter 12. Now that Abram is back on spiritual track, it's part of being on, staying on spiritual track that we be revitalized and renewed by God's covenant promises. And here for Abram, it has to do with this land that he will give with this offspring that he will produce from Abram. That means you're going to have the child that I promised you. Abram's still waiting. There will be a nation that comes from you. And this will connect him back. It will renew him with all the covenant promises that will eventually be realized in the person of Jesus Christ and all the nations will be blessed as the nations could look upon Christ for salvation, not just Abram and his progeny. It's a renewal of the promises of God. It's covenant renewal in the most beautiful sense. God's renewal of grace prompts Abram to worship. Look at what, he, what God tells him to do based on what is true. Arise, verse 17, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. See it all. Take a, take a view of it. For I will give it to you. That's very specific. That's you. That's singular you now. I'm going to give it to you, Abram. So what does Abram do? Abram moved his tent and came and settled in, by the oaks of Mamre, the south of Bethlehem, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, he wants to establish with permanence a place or a setting where he could be reminded to call upon the name of the Lord. Obey, go, pursue this, God says. And Abram does. And he worships in response to this renewal of God's revelation. The means of grace are all throughout this. He cries out to God, God reveals his will. And by, by doing this, He's revitalized and he's refreshed in his faith. And that's fundamentally how we stay spiritually fresh, is by this interchange with the Lord, with covenant renewal. It happens corporately 
in its main way, and then from this corporate place of covenant renewal that we're engaging in now, we individually draw from that throughout the week. And as families, we reflect on that throughout the week. Then we come back together every, every Lord's Day and go through it again because we need this regular renewal. And it really walks through a process that's designed by God to keep us fresh in the faith. That's what we're talking about when we say covenant renewal worship. What does it mean when we have that in the bulletin? It means God calls us as people to worship Him. It means that the gospel can be proclaimed to us the gospel, we recognize we're sinners, Christ saves us, we're refreshed in that reality again, we're his sons and daughters. Then he opens the book of the covenant for us, the scriptures, and we study it, we go through it, we are refreshed in the gospel again. Doesn't leave it there, he feeds us at his table, the table of the covenant, and we're refreshed and we're renewed again. This is how we stay spiritually fresh. I don't mean that your feelings will always follow suit, because life is happening, I realize that, we know that. But there's an objective truth about what God has done for us that we can't get disconnected from or will become dry. He keeps in our focus so that we be, stay dependent. And then from this place, in a little bit, God's going to send us out from here, not to go hide in your house, but to be salt and light in the world. You'll be strengthened, strengthened to do it. And as things get more difficult in the world, you are strengthened for that task, whatever, it may, whatever he may call us to do. And then we come back here, if the Lord wills, and we renew again, and we're refreshed again. You know, this whole, example, this whole uh, story is an example of getting back on spiritual track. From time to time, if I don't see someone for a while, I'll reach out to them if I haven't seen them in worship. Um, and I'll often hear a response like this. In 25 years, I've heard this dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of times. Pastor, I haven't been feeling very close to God. I just haven't really, honestly, I just haven't felt like getting out. I, that's why I haven't been here. I just don't feel close to God right now. Or I'm dealing with this situation, and I'm in a dry place spiritually right now. That's just the reason why. They're honest about it. Now, a person staying away from covenant renewal, staying away from the corporate worship setting and the means of grace that God gives to this setting, um, a person staying away from that when they're feeling spiritually dry is just like looking at your car and the line is below the empty. And your first thought is, I'm not going to a gas station. That's, that's, that's exactly what it's like when someone says it. They don't catch what they're saying, but the place where you'll get the refreshment is where renewal occurs. Now, I don't mean to say that you can't open your Bible and receive uh, some level of a blessing, for sure. But God has called his people together because we're all in different places. and We all need each other's encouragement. And so as we stay encouraged as a, a body, when things are difficult for one part, the rest of the body can help lift us up. And that's part of why we come together on a regular basis and receive this refreshment. The prophet Isaiah said this uh, to a people who are spiritually weary. He said, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases their strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait or call upon the name of the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God's uh, primary means of lifting you from your spiritual dryness is to call you together with the redeemed people of God and to be renewed in covenant with them on a regular basis so you're equipped individually and familially to continue to do it yourselves throughout the week. 
person saying that they're spiritually dry or empty, so they don't come to the house of the Lord to worship is like a starving person who's grown weak and can barely move, and with the last bit of strength, they have opportunity to grab for food, to go to a buffet, but they refuse it. Isaiah, speaking to a dry people, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. A person saying that they're spiritually tired and worn down so they don't come to the house of the Lord to worship with the people of God, it's like a, a person bent over with crushing weights on their back, who when other, others come to help take the logs off their back, they they shoo them away and say, no, I'll carry this until it crushes them. Our Lord said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember that the church of Jesus Christ, that's the body of Christ on earth. And so come to me, at least as an intermediate, you, you come to his body. And from there, Christ is ministered through his means of grace. That's how we stay spiritually alive. There's no such thing as someone who's out there spiritually healthy, disconnected from a local church. No one is healthy who's disconnected from a local church. And even though they may memorize things, you've met people like this, they seem like they're spirit. They're just reciting for you reasons for why they don't go to church, not reasons that are biblical and explain how they could be spiritually healthy apart from connection with the body of Christ. The refreshment that we see happen in this episode with Abram is easily, uh, easily seen in parallel with how our lives are lived when we become spiritually dry and how we get back on spiritual track. That's what we have in Abram. He's humbled by the grace of God. He goes back to the altar of commitment where he started. He consecrates, he focuses, he adjusts, he separates on the basis of what God said and how it may need to be renewed in his life. And then he continually has renewal in his life as a regular recipe or a regular part of his life to continue to stay fresh. That's what we recognize from forgetting God to getting back on spiritual track. Let's pray together as, I, uh, as we bow our heads. Oh Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us uh, these episodes in the Word of God to describe Um, a real believer's life in their walk and what you did in their life. Lord, to the degree that we have grown weary spiritually or dry in the vibrancy of our walk with you, please reanimate your work in each of us. Oh, Lord, refresh us. Please renew us, restore us. Lord, revive us that we might worship and obey you, all for the glory of Christ and for the broadcasting of your holy name on this earth so that many might come and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.